Motorsports Analytics Podcast. I am Alan Ivana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of MotorsportsAnalytics.com. On this episode, some analytics 101 for you guys. We will get nerdy, we'll dig down, and hopefully change the way you watch races and think about racing. We'll then use that to look at the best passers in the Cup Series so far this year and explain how passing is an ability that needs to be appreciated. And then I'll put David on the spot by listing some drivers, making him guess where they are in points, something he claims to never look at. We'll see about that. But first, David, of course, this is episode 13 of Positive Aggression. This is the Jerry Nadeau edition. Jerry Nadeau, a Connecticut driver, a cup veteran, started nearly 180 cup races in his career, which was, of course, cut short by injury. And for a short period of time, David, he drove a memorable number 13 car in the Cup Series. What were your thoughts on this car? Well, it, it, the 13 car we're referring to is the one that was painted like uh, in the Miami Dolphins colors. I hated it because I am a Buffalo Bills <laughs> fan. It was associated with Dan Marino and, again, the Miami Dolphins, who were the biggest rivals of the Buffalo Bills, especially if you were a child of the 90s and a fan of the 90s. There was no bigger rivalry for a Bills fan than those fish, even though they're dolphins, down in Miami. And uh, I hated them, and uh, I hated that car. So <laughs> I'm sorry, Jerry Nadeau and the number 13 team. I hated that paint scheme. Okay, well, first of all, dolphins are mammals. Okay, we'll, get, we'll, we'll, we'll set that straight. Um, Squish but- the fish anyway. <laughs> Teal and orange is a color combo we don't often see on a race car. And that car in particular stood out on the track, on television. It was so easy to spot. Uh, teams, anyone, uh, brand managers, if you're listening, here's an idea. Go with one striking color scheme that's easily visible and maybe rotate your sponsors in and out. The teams in the English Premier League can get away with it. NASCAR team should be able to as well. Um, Alan, my least favorite race to rewatch and break down is Darlington because I paused the screen to study a restart, and because it's throwback weekend, I don't recognize any of the cars in front of me. Uh, it takes a while to comprehend who's driving which car. In all cases, I want a car with a paint scheme so loud and vibrant that it's impossible to ignore. At least Elliott Marino Motorsports gave us that because they didn't give us much of anything else. While Bill Elliott was a big name and McDonald's was his primary sponsor, Elliott Racing was not a big team. Everything with it could have worked fine if they'd stuck to the single car model But adding that second car, in hindsight, was aggressive. Putting a rookie in the pop-up second car was not, at any point, a good idea. Uh, It was not good when it was happening. It is not good with the benefit of time. Jerry Nadeau, in five races during the 1997 season, never finished better than 30th and scored a negative peer, minus 025 And that is not the kind of statistical profile you want to launch a new race team. Alan, they should have seen this coming. He lasted 17 races in the car before the team felt compelled to make a driver change. Not that the change was any better. Wally Dallenbach was one of the drivers acting as a replacement. And Dallenbach must have been a hell of a convincing grifter because he was one of the worst Cup Series regulars in the 90s and was hired far too often by good team owners. But I digress. 
Nadu ended that season with a negative peer, ended his career with a minus 0.859 P-ROA. There are only four active drivers with P-ROAs worse than that. Uh, suffice to say, the car lingers more prominently in my memory than its results, its driver, and its team. And that's really not much of a positive, but that's the only positive we can draw from it, right? Is that we remember the car, not necessarily uh, it, its quality performance, nor its drivers. I, I did not know it was Wally Dallenbach that replaced Jerry Nadeau. I, I do I do remember Nadeau getting uh, bounced out of that ride, and, and that's really about it. And I remember the paint scheme. So if we're trying to stay positive, uh, that, that's the only positive I take away from it, even though I dislike the paint scheme. I don't know. <laughs> Look, we keep, we keep it real on positive regression. We're, we are, we're not going to sugarcoat anything. That whole team was not a good idea. Not, not great at all. And then eventually, like about 10 years later, uh, first plus financial, the sponsor on that car, um, would, uh, uh would, uh, rise to prominence because members of one of the five families in the New York mafias did an illegal takeover of the, uh, the board in that company. And they were uh, eventually arrested for their illegal practices and racketeering and, not great. Nothing, nothing really good came of, uh, first plus financial or that race team, but it's, uh, it does live on in our memory. So that's something. Yep. Jerry Nadeau eventually moved on to bigger and better things. Racing, of course, for Team Hendrick had a memorable win at Atlanta and then it just a tough ending to his career with that crash in Richmond. Uh, maybe a story of what could have been, David. Uh, just for kicks, I actually looked at a, uh, a regression analysis, uh, projecting what would have been his age 39 season and it spat out a, a 1.5 peer. Uh, it's around the average for that age. I think what we're talking about on the what if side is Nadu probably would have developed into an average driver uh, towards the end of his career, not necessarily one that we missed out on. I, I don't think we're talking about a Hall of Fame career, but Look, average drivers in the NASCAR Cup Series are employed, are paid well, and that's something for which to strive, and he was getting there. Episode 13, the Jerry Nadeau edition of Positive Regression. All right, let's start off. This is an off weekend coming up for all of racing, at least in NASCAR. So as we head into this off weekend, it's the perfect time, David, to dive in and explain a little bit. The goal of this podcast every week is to teach and leave uh, hopefully the listeners with something useful, maybe change the way you look at racing while you're at the track or watching it on television. So we're going to use this week to talk about the term pass efficiency. What is it? Why it's important? David, let's start broad and then dig down. What is pass efficiency and how do you measure it? Pass efficiency and pass differential existed before motorsports analytics and really before I began dabbling in statistics. Uh, back when I was scouting regularly on behalf of MMI, I'd go to different short tracks and bring with me a notepad and a pen and tally the number of pass encounters for the different drivers I was watching. This gave me a little more of an idea and some rudimentary data to fall back on when writing scouting reports. Uh, and, and by the way, for our listeners, this is something that they can do. Go to a short track race, focus on just one car for now. When you get better at it, you can uh, veer out, get multiple cars, but tally when they make a pass, when they get passed, and at the end of the race, you have a crude form of pass efficiency. It's low tech, of course, but 
it is information that hardly anyone else has, and it's valuable insight into the driver uh, that you are watching. With the advent of loop data, which collected passing totals, uh, these numbers became more readily available, but the differential by itself is not entirely a trustworthy number, hence the adjustments I make. Positional gains during green flag pit cycles are not straightforward passes. They're gone, as are other fluke occurrences. And another adjustment, the biggest one, is accounting for the equipment by using their average running whereabouts, which is formed by things like speed and strategy and comparing the adjusted pass efficiency with those of the teams nearby in the running order, we can pinpoint an expected pass efficiency and differential. The deltas in both are what give us surplus passing value and surplus pass differential, which our listeners have heard me mention often. So off the bat, we have two... Uh, very reliable numbers, though different, but two very reliable numbers that we can use to measure a driver's passing ability. And just the word efficiency, uh, I think of, you know, passing obviously is an ability, but when I hear the word efficiency, there, the way a driver makes a pass and maybe how long it takes, does that factor in or are we able to deduce something with the term pass efficiency, how a driver is able to make a pass yeah, the the cleanest, most efficient pass is a car driving by another car in one corner or a straightaway. It doesn't waste time on the racetrack. And something people forget is that the time gap between two cars is as important as the track position itself. Side-by-side racing, which creates jostling and inflates some of these passing numbers because uh, the, the transponders being used and the, the timing and scoring methods are super sensitive. They record every small jostle as a pass per position. All of this is wasting time. It, it, it is inefficient. When you hear about a total number of passes for a certain driver, not a, def- uh, not a differential, just the number of passes in his favor, that's potentially misleading. If it's a high number of passes, it probably comes with a high number of pass encounters, and that tells us nothing of their actual ability. It just tells us they race side by side successfully for much of the race and wasted away a lot of time between the running order on the racetrack. And we know there are fast cars and slow cars, and we know that we hear about aero issues and how tough it is to pass. What I want people to take away from this is there are some drivers out there, per the numbers, that are better at passing than others. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. And and that's quite visible. You know, there's two methods to look at that, uh, at this with the, the two different stats, uh, adjusted pass efficiency and surplus passing value. Both are important. Uh, adjusted pass efficiency is important because the measurement is an actuality. If you were to rank every driver and team by adjusted pass efficiency, you would get a reliable rundown of where every driver stands and moving through traffic. If you're a daily fantasy player, this is the passing metric you should be studying because it is an actuality. Surplus passing value, on the other hand, is a metric those in the business of evaluating and hiring drivers should be studying because these positions are, in theory, hypothetical, but it's a measurement of a number above or below an expectation. It's best used in hindsight to evaluate a race performance, 
not totally different than something like expected goals, which is a stat that's become popular in soccer. ESPN uses it all the time. Surplus passing value assists in assessing whether a result lived up to the effort. So when you're looking at these metrics, uh, you know, you are in talent evaluation. That's what you've been doing for much of your career. These metrics, pass efficiency, uh, how important is that if you are, say, a team owner and you are trying to predict future success of a driver, how much are you looking at adjusted pass efficiency, which, which you tell us is maybe your ability to pass cars out on the racetrack? How important is that at predicting success in the future? It's very important. It's good for drivers like Christopher Bell and John Hunter Nemechek that have displayed the, an ability to create their own track position, and uh, that is important And that it allows a crew chief to open the playbook, make that game plan bigger, uh, anything goes, because you have a driver that can be relied upon. Young drivers will never be able to make up the lack of experience compared to older drivers, but they can go match for match with speed, especially if it's a situation like Eric Jones or Chase Elliott where they're Cup Series rookies, but in playoff-ready equipment. If your passing ability coalesces with your speed, you'll be a very efficient passer, as both of those guys were in Trucks, Xfinity, and initially in the Cup Series. That was their trait that carried And as a matter of fact, pass efficiency was the indicator for me, at least, that Kyle Larson was, after one Xfinity Series season, completely ready to tackle the Cup Series. He didn't win in that first Xfinity season, and when Chip Ganassi Racing announced him as Juan Montoya's replacement in the 42 car, there was a small uproar of folks thinking that this was too soon. I didn't think so. He, no, he didn't win, but his, his peer was good and he led series regulars that year in pass efficiency. And that is what ultimately translated for him and, and gave him what is perceived to be some instant success in NASCAR's highest division. We'll get to some real world examples here in a moment, but just in general, I don't know if I can play devil's advocate, but if you have a car, you look at your central speed rankings and you have a fast race car. Doesn't that allow for better passing? Wouldn't you expect a driver? Oh, it must be easy to pass because he's got a fast car. How do you adjust for that? Yeah, and that's what the the difference between adjusted pass efficiency and surplus passing value helps. Adjusted pass efficiency will take the driver and car and the tangible number uh, that is produced in terms of pass differential. Uh, that is what it's measuring. But surplus passing value can give you the surplus that the driver is actually providing the team based on where he's running. I love surplus passing value because it tells us so much about what is happening, what could happen in different pockets of the running order. It illustrates why a driver like Ross Chastain, who ranks very well in this category, performs so well against his surrounding competition. It also helps us understand why a driver like Reed Sorensen stays employed because he is really good at picking up spots in backmarker equipment against others in backmarker equipment. That is a talent. If a driver is able to consistently get by the cars close to him in speed, that's valuable to any team, especially those on a minuscule budget. Interesting. And that is why team principals often uh, subscribe to Motorsports Analytics and like uh, like the work you do, David. So let's apply some more real-world examples you have compiled. We are at the quarter pole point uh, for the Cup season. Uh, and so like, let's look at some real-world numbers. Um, 
for the season, who are the best passers so far in the Cup Series? Well, the best passer by far is Kyle Busch. And we talked about this after his 200th uh, NASCAR National Series victory. We talked about how he's improved, even though that might be imperceptible to the naked eye. In previous seasons up to 2018, his adjusted pass efficiency was a positive. He's in Joe Gibbs Racing equipment, after all. But his surplus passing value was negative. He shored up his only quantifiable weakness in that regard. Uh, he's the most efficient passer in the Cup Series this year, both in adjusted pass efficiency and in surplus passing value. His SPV is plus 4.04%, which is a big jump from his plus 1.67 last year. The expected pass differential from Bush and the 18 team this year is plus 35. Their actual adjusted differential is plus 129, and that's a surplus of 94 spots from Bush. And this is a steady distribution. Aside from Martinsville, and with Daytona omitted, I omit all plate tracks, he scored positive surplus differentials in every race this season. Uh, I mentioned it a few episodes ago, but I'll reiterate it now. If Kyle Busch is now a high-efficiency passer, his competition should be concerned because the most obvious hitch in his repertoire is now gone. And we know this because we're able to measure via surplus passing value. Kyle Busch is good, and he's getting better, apparently. Who else is uh, up there on the list of best passers early on in this cup season? One I do want to talk about, Ryan Blaney. Uh, in 2017, Blaney's surplus passing was minus 3.44%, uh, worse than every driver that season except Greg Galding, and this resulted in a surplus loss of 202 spots on the track. In 2018, Blaney's surplus passing was minus 2.03%, a slight uptick, but still the fourth least efficient SPV after Corey LaJoy, Greg Galding, and William Byron. And this resulted in a surplus loss of 87 spots, which was, to his credit, a big improvement for track position purposes. This season, Blaney is a plus mover in uh, both passing numbers. His surplus passing is plus 1.17%, and this has resulted so far in a positive positional surplus, 34 spots in his favor. Uh, two weeks ago, for Motorsports Analytics, I wrote about how Blaney seems to fare poor in races where he has the most speed at his disposal. Just in terms of things like top 15 efficiency, uh, he and crew chief Jeremy Bullins have been chronic underachievers going on three seasons now. The jury is out on whether Bullins is a good pit strategist at the Cup Series level, but Blaney's development as a passer, coupled with his strong restart numbers, he's long been a productive restarter, is a boon for this team. Right now, we are witnessing a talented young driver become a better rounded competitor, and that is that is improvement. That is movement in a young driver's career where we're seeing a prospect blossom into a star. Interesting. Not getting the finishes he probably deserves then when you put up those stats, but we knew that just by looking at uh, some of the results and where he is in the point standings, something we may talk about later in this episode. Uh, hit us with one more uh, in terms of best passers, nine races into this Cup Series season. Anyone else stand out? Uh, in early episodes of Positive Regression, we talked about the reason Ryan Priest was such an intriguing replacement for A.J. Allmendinger 
And though he's struggling to produce results, something that was expected, he is, as a rookie, able to create his own track position on the track type where Almendinger struggled. He's the ninth most efficient passer in the Cup Series, and as expected, he's scoring passes in his favor on the steep intermediates. The combined expected pass differential from him at Atlanta and Texas was plus two. His actual pass differential was plus 24. JTG struggled on the 1.5-mile tracks last year, but they made a big stride with the addition of Priest. Almendinger scored a surplus loss of 10 positions in those races last year, so the number 47 team enjoyed a 34-spot swing in track position in Atlanta and Texas. So a pretty big leap sort of justifies, even with the poor results, the move they made to part ways with A.J. Allmendinger uh, and sign a, a rookie out of Modifieds. Good stuff there, David. Learned a lot about passing, and uh, keep that in mind next time you're watching the race and or at the racetrack. Moving on to the next point. Again, we are going in to uh, an off weekend for NASCAR racing, so a good time to look at the point standings if you are a storyteller like myself, kind of make some assessments, some judgments about where teams should be, who is struggling, who is not. I brought this up to David. We've talked about it. He's even mentioned it here on the podcast. David, you do not look at the point standings at all. They, they they just don't concern you? Of all the numbers and all the stats that you look at, point standings just don't concern you? Many, many years ago, I wrote for Athlon Sports, uh, and my editor there was a sharp fellow named Matt Talaferro, and he popularized a saying, if you're unhappy with NASCAR's rules, points format, what have you, then wait three years until it changes again. And I love that thought. Uh, I will tell you, and this sounds highbrow, but I swear it's true. I focus my energy on statistics and analysis that occurs between green flag and checkered flag. And there is so much to do there, so much to home in on that I don't have interest in analyzing things like point scenarios or optimal points formats. It's not that I don't care. It's just that I choose not to. And again, I came to analytics with a motivation to become a better evaluator, not a better fantasy player or prognosticator. So my motivations might be different than some of our listeners. I, uh, For me, the, the, the race is every weekend. Uh, I study things in regards to the race and after the fact. And that's kind of it until the next race. I, the, the points and the, and the year long situations and the stage points ultimately don't concern me too much. So no, I don't spend a lot of time looking at points and I'm actually pretty nervous about this segment because you are entirely in control. I have no idea what questions are going to be asked. I have no authority over this. I am passenger into uh, my own demise here. The reason I bring this up is because we are going to throw some names at David, and uh, he knows a lot, but let's see if he can extrapolate some of that stuff in his head to see where they are actually in points and if he can correctly guess where some of these drivers stand right now. Here we go, David. We're going to start out with Denny Hamlin. He's got two wins, started out the season with uh, the win at the Daytona 500. Where is he in the Cup Series standings right now? Is he second? He's not close, though. He is third. He is third. Oh, okay. Eight top tens. Only 97 laps led. Doesn't lead a lot of laps. Again, I don't know how important of a metric that is, but he leads the important ones. But Denny Hamlin stands third right now. Kyle Busch, of course, first. Joey Logano, second. And Denny Hamlin sits third. Okay. Where's Brad Keselowski, then? 
Brad Kislowski is fifth behind Kevin Harvick, who is in fourth. So despite all of Brad's laps led, again, you lead a bunch at, uh, what, Martinsville. It's going to throw off things a little bit. But uh, Brad Kislowski and his two wins sit fifth right now, minus 87 behind Kyle Busch. Okay, so that's interesting. I just, I, that was a Hail Mary, but it was closer than I thought. Hamlin ranks second in average finish, right? So 5.6 5. place average. Kyle Busch is the only driver ranking better. And that's, that's where I fell on that. But I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't consider Logano and Team Penske is pretty good about getting those stage points. So that's, that's going to be what throws me off on this. Oh man, you're you're going you're gonna to find some of these mid race guys that are that are getting points. This isn't no. going to go well. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, another a storyline again. If you look at the points, you would look at them and you would be and you would say, "Oh man, Kyle Larson not having a great year." Where is Kyle Larson in points right now, David? Twentieth. Wow, Kyle Larson is 19th in points right now, despite really? having the 12th fastest car according to the Central Speed Rankings. Yes, Kyle Larson, way down there on the charts, just a few points ahead of William Byron and four points behind Ricky Stenhouse Jr., 19th in points right now. So not only does he have the worst crash frequency in the Cup Series this year, he's also crashed three times in red zone situations. So he's crashing at the beginning of races, having problems in the middle of races, and then crashing at the end of races. This has not been a good year. Even in regards to uh, his pass efficiency, it's it's less uh, than expected. It's, it's uh, right now minus 2.48%. He is having a tough time figuring out the new rules package and for as much as he is a, a proponent of more short tracks, he seems to really struggle there. Um, that is not surprising. Yeah, he does not have, other than that Atlanta showing him, he, and he didn't really get that great of a finish there. Yeah, that's, that's not a surprising place for him. And still with two top tens, he's 19th. So, you know, the, the company around him does not, do not have the two top tens to help him and aid in those point standings. So things could be even worse over there for Kyle Larson. Just shows you how the other seven races have gone for, uh, Mr. Young Larson there. So, uh, very, very good. You've only been one off on each one. So now we're going to switch over to the Xfinity series. Jeffrey Earnhardt, where does he stand in the Xfinity series standings? Again, with only three races, where's Jeffrey oh, no. Earnhardt? In the standings. Oh, man. Okay. I, I mean, how many Xfinity Series regulars are there? Oh, well, boy. I'll give you a clue. He is in front of seven drivers who have made all eight starts. Jeffrey Earnhardt has made three starts. Where is he wow. on the point standings? Wow. It pays to be a Joe Gibbs Racing driver. Um, 21st. 20th. How are you doing this? Oh, God. I, Jeffrey no, Earnhardt I, okay. is 20th in the standings. I, I, I just guessed. That's it. I really just guessed. I, man. Okay. He is, well, he's, he's that, he's that, he's that far ahead of like drivers that have competed in every race. Yeah. See, now, okay. That's, this is kind of one of the reasons why I've just stopped paying attention because that doesn't make a lot of sense. He is three points behind David Starr, who has started all eight races. He is uh, tied with Josh Williams, who has done seven of the eight races. And he is ahead of drivers like BJ McLeod, Joey Gase, Vinnie Miller, Matt Mills, Stephen Like, Mike Harmon, and uh, I think Jeff Green, who have at least started okay. all the races. Obviously, we know they don't finish all those races, but there are, he is drivers that start and finish 
all eight races. He is ahead of a handful of them. And Jeffrey Earnhardt, with his three starts, is tr- still 20th in the Xfinity Series standings. Come on, David Starr. You got to get with the program here. <laughs> J- Jimmy Jimmy Means Racing needs some uh, some infusion here. Good one. I, I thought I was going to trick you with that one because he only had the three starts, but not bad at all. Not bad. Let's go over to the truck series, the series near and dear to my heart. Just quickly, do you know who the point leader is? Grand Infinger? Stuart Friesen, still the point leader. Oh, still okay. winless in his career. But Stuart Friesen, the current point leader, where is defending champion Brett Moffitt right now? Obviously, who moved on to another team to GMS Racing in the 24 truck. Where is Brett Moffitt in the current truck series standings? I'm going to guess eighth. Ooh, low. I mean, there aren't that many great trucks. Brett Moffitt is fifth right now in the truck series standings. Obviously, all five races competed in, three top fives, three top tens, and one DNF. So maybe running better than than the points would suggest when you factor in that DNF. But yeah, Brett Moffitt, new team, fifth right now in the standings. No win yet. Uh, Something you may have expected out of him. How do you feel about him in fifth? Well, I mean, as much as you want to say that this has been a small sample uh, of races for the truck series, it's what five races into a twenty-five, no, twenty-three race schedule is. Yeah, that okay. We're, I mean, we are kind of cutting into it, but obviously, the poor performances are going to be magnified. He has some time, but just relative to the series, not a lot for a course correction. I think his saving grace is that he can win and get into the playoffs. And we've seen how capable the GMS racing trucks are come playoff time in, in the truck series. If I'm him, I, I certainly wouldn't panic. He's one of the best restarters, one of the most capable passers. And it, it's quality equipment, maybe not the strength that he had at his disposal last season. But I have to imagine he he still feels pretty good about his shot at repeating uh, as a as a champion. One more truck series question: Who is higher in points, David, Todd Gilliland or his teammate Harrison Burton? Harrison Burton. You are incorrect. Oh, Todd, really? Todd Gilliland has one wow. more point, sitting eighth in the standings right now, that final playoff spot, while Harrison Burton currently out of the playoff picture. 148 points to Todd Gillen's 149, one position difference, one point difference currently. That surprised me, honestly, just given the storylines and things we've talked about with Todd Gillen, the struggles they've had, um, the expectations that come with Todd Gillen and that four truck, two win races and have more wins at this point in his career, well, you know, more than the zero, unfortunately, he currently has. But Harrison Burton has run into some uh, trouble as well, crashing out early in races, and now sits one point behind his Kyle Busch Motorsports teammate. That surprised me, David. Because I'm petty and, and a little bit incredulous, I had to look this up. But average finish for Todd Gilliland is 12.8. For Harrison Burton, it's 14.6. So that actually does make some sense. Also, a fun little fact. Both of their fourth quarter speed rankings sit at 9.2. So Todd Gilliland in his number four KBM truck and Harrison Burton in his number 18 KBM truck are closing out races with the same exact speed. That's interesting. That is interesting. We'll see how that plays out for those two youngsters on the same team with high expectations. And finally, the last one I have, we'll go back to the Cup Series. The highest Hendrick car in the standings right now is Chase Elliott. Where? Where is he in the standings? I'm going to say 13th. 
you are underestimating him. He is 10th right now in the standings, which lines up perfectly with his central speed ranking so far on the season. Uh, so clearly you're surprised by Chase Elliott's position in points. Why is that? Perhaps I'm forgetting about Texas. I don't know. The, the, the Martinsville race sticks out as his only bright spot of the year. Uh, Bristol after qualifying on the pole was something of a disappointment. And off the top of my head, yeah, I think maybe Texas was just better than, than I recall it being. And I think right. maybe that's it. I mean, but he's thinking about some of his peripheral statistics. He's the least efficient passer right now in the cup series. And that just considering the speed is still an issue for Hendrick Motorsports because whatever speed they're providing him is getting wasted somewhat. And that's, we, we have physically seen Chase Elliott be better than this. So he's a candidate for positive regression as the season progresses, but not a great start for him. Uh, that's one of the reasons he was my, one of my early season underachievers, uh, on motorsportsanalytics.com. But yeah, maybe a little bit better from a points, uh, points wise than I gave him credit. Yeah, he's sandwiched between Ryan Blaney. He's 10 points behind Ryan Blaney. Blaney has a fast car, wow. but two DNFs, and he is actually yeah. ahead of Eric Almarola. Another fast car on the season, but again, two DNFs for Eric Almarola. So when yes. you play the points game, bad finishes seem to hurt you a lot more than, uh, good finishes often help you. Uh, you know, I've heard that axiom, and sometimes we, uh, we see that play out when you look at the standings. How do you feel about that dynamic? You know, it's one thing I've never liked because, look, you're going to get me going now. Let's go back, David, 26 years to the year 1993 when an awesome driver named Rusty Wallace won 10 races, one-third of the season, checkered flags for Mr. Wallace, and he had no championship to show for it. Why? We can go back and watch a big story I did last year called The Big 1993, if you want to go back on my Twitter feed. But he had one small bad stretch of DNFs, and those DNFs hurt him far more than the 10 race wins seemed to help him because he got zero championships out of it and, of course, went to Dale Earnhardt. Similar situation the following season where Rusty won eight races and finished third in the standings. Uh, not that I'm still bitter, right? You can't hear it in my voice, but I've always not enjoyed that how poor finishes hurt you so much more seemingly than a good finish helps you. Yeah. And being just sort of this objective observer last year when we had three drivers, three teams have incredible years and in Kevin Harvick, Kyle Busch and Martin Truex, it felt like if you're going to award a championship, it should have been one of them. The fact that Joey Logano won and not to take anything away from it, he he won completely within the rules as they were written at the beginning of the season, but seems a little bit hollow. And for me, I thought it was pretty compelling to see if there are three drivers just throwing haymakers at each other every weekend. Uh, that's pretty incredible. That's good parody. And I felt like even be, because there was a playoff format that crowned a champion, the big three's impact in the regular season last year was dialed back. While 
you bemoan the fact that Rusty Wallace was a member of that big three in 1993 and didn't win a championship. I would argue at least he was in contention because the other three weren't. I mean, just based on a, a very loose playoff reset, things change and it depends on who gets on a hot streak at the right time of the season. And last year that happened to be Joey Logano. And I've heard it before. I mean, it comes down to not even one race. It comes down to a restart or one run in the final race of the year. Uh, love it or hate it. I mean, that's the reality now. And that's how some people think of it in the garage that the championship comes down to one run in the final race of the season. And last year it was a short run and the car with short run speed. Everyone, we talked about it earlier on this podcast. You know, I, I loved that race because everyone at some point led more than 20 laps and it was Joey Logano's time to have the short run car. And he certainly earned it, certainly went out and won the race by nearly two seconds. But, uh, that's how it's thought about sometimes in the garage now. Interesting. Yeah. He, he, he earned it within the context of that race. But if, if you're a stickler for this, did he earn it through the context of the entire year? Because that team had a lot of holes in its repertoire over the course of the season, figured it out at the end. And, and that's what playoff formats like this highlight. Um, other, other stick and ball sports are, uh, are volatile in that regard. And so is NASCAR. Uh, so I don't know that that's sort of why I've taken a step back and, and paying too much attention to points and instead just focusing on past races and upcoming races and figuring out how are these races going to be won and who are some of the top performers going to be or who have they been. For me, I find that more fascinating and that helps inform my analysis uh, that informs all of our listeners. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, we are available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean. We have all your favorite devices covered here on Positive Regression. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or a review. That helps this podcast gain a lot of visibility, so your help in spreading the word is appreciated. If you have questions, you know we like to answer them, so shoot them over on Twitter. You can reach out on Twitter at posregpog, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. Uh, off weekend for all of NASCAR, so I will not be at a racetrack, but, uh, catch up on my Twitter feed. Interviewed Ryan Newman this week, who was very forthcoming about the expectations and the realities of the six car. It was good to talk with him, and we'll have some good stuff coming up next week about Talladega as we look toward that. David, what are you working on? On our prospects episode of Positive Regression, you asked if there were any weaknesses to Christopher Bell, and I said, yes, he crashes a lot. Well, Again, he has the highest crash frequency in the Xfinity series through eight races, so I wrote about it for motorsportsanalytics.com, comparing him to two other rather notorious crashers, and that is posted right now. I'm curious to uh, see what the reaction is to that. Looking forward to that. Make sure you check that out on motorsportsanalytics.com. And I know there are some short tracks out there, so maybe you can find yourself at a short track. Go watch some live racing. If not, enjoy the off weekend for David Smith. I'm Alan Kavana. This is Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. Stay positive, everybody. Mira 
Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.